North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. You've tuned into the Dr. Lowe Show with naturopathic doctor, Dr. Lauren Noel, where you hear the best in natural medicine, nutrition, and mindset from the world's top doctors, authors, influencers, and Dr. Lowe herself. Trying just to pop a pill for a symptom? You've got the wrong exit. Seeking doable ways to live a happier, healthier life and have fun doing it? Welcome to the Dr. Lowe Show. Welcome back to the show, to Dr. Low Radio. I am Dr. Lauren Noel. I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me for another amazing episode. If you're new, welcome to the show. If you're a repeated listener, welcome back. A little more about me. I'm a naturopathic doctor. I work here in the San Diego area. I work with patients locally as well as all over the country. So if you are wanting to look under the hood and get a little more insight into your health and wanting some support to get to that optimal health place. I would love to work with you. We also have a whole team of doctors at my practice, shinenaturalmedicine.com. You can learn more about us there. If you are loving this show, you've been getting value out of it. I would love if you would go over to iTunes or on Stitcher, depending on which type of device you're using and leave us a review. I would so appreciate it. If you could leave a five star, maybe leave a comment about your experience of the show. If there's anything that you're loving about the show. And also if you have your own personal health story, I would love to hear about it there. At this point, we've had well over a million listens to this show, which is mind-boggling. My jaw drops just thinking about that many people listening to um, to my show. It's it's insane, but it, we've helped so many people over the last five, almost six years now, and um, just feel really, really grateful that I'm able to share this information with you, and I just so appreciate the continued support. If you heard last week's show, I was really, really excited to kick off my very first episode of having an actual sponsor on the podcast. It's been over five years and I finally have decided that I'm going to move forward with a particular sponsor. And that's because I really believe in what it is that they are offering. And it's something that my own family is loving. And that's over at Organifi.com. Organifi has a really, really amazing greens, superfood juice that you just basically add water to it. You can drink it down and it is organic. It is a freeze-dried greens powder that has a really important herb in it called ashwagandha. Ashwagandha has been used for thousands of years in, in traditional Ayurvedic medicine, which is from India. And, and ashwagandha is an herb that helps your body basically deal with stress. And how many of you are dealing with stress? <laughs> Something that is rampant in our culture is we're all just so stressed nowadays. So anything that gives us that resilience and that extra support to deal with the stressors is super valuable. What I love about Organifi is it actually tastes really good. It doesn't taste like you're eating lawnmower clippings, like a lot of green drinks do. And it's just super good quality. It tastes really good. And my personal opinion is that all of us need to be on some sort of superfoods, greens, Because even if we're eating everything quote unquote right and perfect, we're not getting as much nutrition in our diet as we actually think that we are. Micronutrient deficiencies are rampant, super, super common in our culture that we're eating super good stuff and not getting all the nutrients that we need because food is sitting on trucks for a really long time to get to us or the soil is just depleted and not as rich in nutrients as we might really be hoping for. So I love a a way to get that sort of insurance into our diet is having some sort of greens drink. So I love Organifi, really, really good stuff. You can check them out over at Organifi.com. That's O-R-G-A-N ifi.com and enter Dr. Lowe at checkout, D-R-L-O at checkout, and you get 20% off the retail price off of your order. That's Organifi.com and enter Dr. Lowe at checkout. You're welcome. So on to tonight's show, we're talking all about eating mindset. We're talking about habits around eating and 
really diving deep into what are these patterns that we have had in regards to food or in regards to different addictions and how can we really break some of these addictions and patterns. So many of these patterns that we find ourselves falling into is I think a lot of times because we're just maybe checked out. We're too distracted. We are not really thinking about what it is that we're doing. And I think this conversation tonight is going to have us really take a step back, look at things a bit bigger and think about what it is that we're really doing to ourselves. So many of us are dealing with addictions and dealing with areas maybe like overeating or alcohol or drugs even online shopping, or even maybe sexual addiction, or maybe it's an addiction of social media. I mean, it could be something as, as seemingly basic as that, but it's, it's pulling us from really living the life that we want. And so that's why I really think this conversation is going to bring a lot to the table. So with that said, let's jump into the show. All right. I'm so happy to have my guest on the show tonight. We have Glenn Livingston, Dr. Glenn Livingston on the show, and we're going to be talking all about kind of the areas of overeating and stress eating, binge eating. This is something that I've been talking about a little more on my show because it's such a common issue that people are dealing with. So love to have different experts to share their perspectives and how we can create some, some real solutions in these areas. So Dr. Glenn Livingston, he is a veteran psychologist and longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen his or his company's previous work theories and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, the LA Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indiana Star-Ledger, New York Daily News, and many other publications. You also may have heard him on ABC, WGN, or CBS Radio. Just this illusion by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston, he spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via his work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Doc, Glenn, what do you prefer I call you? Glenn, Dr. Livingston, <laughs> I'm happy to... Glenn is fine. Okay, perfect. Glenn is perfectly fine, yeah. Awesome. What's well, so great to have you on the show, Glenn. And, and it's, you know, I think this is such an important topic we're talking about. So I would love to have you share a little bit more about your personal story that brought you to really focusing on this area. Sure. Sure. And let me just say, I, I ask people to call me Glenn in this context because some of my thinking is maybe outside the uh, standards of care for psychology. So I prefer not to talk as a psychologist, but sure. as a uh, coach and an educator, we're just plain old Glenn. Love it. And so, so my story is that I, as a teenager and early, early adult, I had what you would probably diagnose today as exercise bulimia, which means that I really like to binge, but I, I couldn't get myself to purge. I couldn't get myself to throw up. But I discovered that if I exercised a lot, that I, um, I didn't gain weight. I was... I wasn't until I'm six foot four, <coughs> excuse me, I'm so sorry, fairly muscular. And um, so I could eat five, 6,000 calories a day with no problem if I exercised for two or three hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of thought I hit the lottery. I felt like I had this really great secret. And, you know, all the way through college, I, I kind of look back at the things that I ate and I wonder how I survived. But um, <laughs> when, when, when I got into graduate school is when it started to catch up with me because I had patients and I was married and I was commuting and there was just no way I could exercise for two or three hours a day. And I started to gain weight. Um, and more importantly, I found that I, I couldn't really scale back the amount of food that I was eating. And I developed a bit of an obsession. I, I would be sitting with couples and trying to help them you know, overcome an affair. And, and being a psychologist has always been really, really important to me. I, I was born in a family of 17 psychologists and psychotherapists and social workers and psychiatrists and counselors. And, and I was joked that you don't want to come to my family reunion. But, you know, first and foremost, I really wanted to help people. And I, I went to psychology school for a reason. And so it really bothered me 
that I'd be sitting with these couples and I found it hard to concentrate because I couldn't stop thinking about when I could go get a whole pizza or when, when could I go to the delicatessen and dislodge my jaw for a while um, and just have them empty, empty it into me. Mm-hmm. And, and so being from a family of psychologists and being a psychologist myself, I, I really went this psychological route and I, I saw psychologists, I went to Overeaters Anonymous, um, I did a lot of very deep soul searching. I, I even funded my own study, but I don't have children and I never really commuted after, after graduate school, so I've had a lot of time to develop an industrious career. And I did millions of dollars of consulting for big, big companies, so I knew how to do these big studies. And I even funded my own study to look at the relationship between food and personality. I found some really interesting things. I found out some really interesting things about myself. You know, for example, that I would crave chocolate like other people do when I feel lonely or isolated and unloved. But it, it turned out that that didn't really work to solve the problem because what would happen is there'd be this little voice inside me that would say, you know, Glenn, you're right. Your your mom and your papa didn't quite love you enough and you are feeling unloved in your life right now. So until you can solve that, the only real pleasure you can get is some chocolate. So you might as well keep binging. Mm. And, and so long story short, I came to the point where I said, you know what? Maybe it's not so much about why I do this, but that I do this. And maybe it's that little voice inside of me that is really dangerous. And it's not really, not really the fact that I have a little hole in my soul or I need to nurture my inner wounded child, which I, I think it's good to do soul searching. I think it's good to nurture your inner wounded child, but it doesn't seem to solve the problem. But it didn't for me or for the patients that I was working with. And, um, you know, so I started to investigate that route. I'll pause for a second in case you want to interrupt and no, that's say anything. Okay. So I started reading a lot of alternative addiction literature and I came across someone who deals with the black and white addictions primarily, but black and white meaning those things which you can quit entirely, you know, drugs, alcohol, um, cigarettes, those types of things, as opposed to food where you have to take the line out of the cage and walk around the block a couple of times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, there is this, there's this man named Jack Trimpey who'd written a book called Rational Recovery. And I, I was just fascinated with his approach because he was basically saying, it's, it's not really about why. It's not really about why you do it. It's about learning to recognize that little voice inside of you that says you should drink or you will drink or you will do drugs. And in, in a million and one different ways, that little voice will say that. And if you can just ignore that little voice the same way that Jodie Foster ignored Hannibal Lecter, then it doesn't get any further. It's, it's giving that voice credence that is really the problem. And he's very protective about his work, so I don't say too much more about them except that if you have a black and white addiction, I really recommend that people look into it. Um, but I, I had to make a lot of modifications for what I call you know, complex behavioral economics, things like, you know, food or any, anything where you can't just, you can't just quit where there's a lot of complex behaviors that you have to define in order to decide exactly what is healthy for you and what's not. And wh- where is that line between addiction and, and, and health? And um, I created a whole bunch of modifications. And I can explain any of them to you that you like. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but, what do you mean by modifications? Well, well, so um, I, I realized that what I had to do was find a way to make eating black and white. I had to find a way that you could really hear that voice by, um, in, in conventional literature, in the popular psychology, it's in vogue to say you should live by guidelines and not rules. Um, it's in vogue to say you should strive for progress and not perfection. You should, you should 
do your best to eat well 90% of the time. And then the other 10% of the time you're kind of, you know, all bets are off. And for me, that didn't work. And I found for a lot of binge eaters that didn't work because it left too much ambiguity about when were those times that we were going to go off and how far were we going to go off. And if you really had the experience with overeating or binge eating the way that I have and a lot of other people have, you could do a lot of damage in that 10% of the time. And so the first thing that I did was I said, okay, we need crystal clear rules and let's put them into four buckets. Let's, let's say you need rules that will tell you what you're always going to do, rules that tell you what you're never going to do, rules that tell you what you would do under certain conditions and rules that tell you what you would do um, in unrestricted ways. So for example, for me personally, I never eat chocolate. I just, I just don't. There's no, my sister can have two little squares of chocolate and she can make a joke about herself being a chocolate addict and put it back in her pocketbook. Mm-hmm. And for me, there's just no point. It's just two squares is, you know, like one fortieth of what I really want. Right. Um, and so I, I just don't do that. I just don't do that. But I, other people will say, I only ever eat chocolate on weekends. Some people only ever eat chocolate on social occasions. But the point is to really know yourself and figure out where are those dangerous intersections and where do you need stop signs versus yield signs. And, um, and, and so I, you know, I developed this, this um, system for articulating very clear rules. Um, and rather than following someone else's diet, I, I find that most people that I work with have been trying to follow someone else's diet forever and they jump from diet to diet to diet. And so I tell them that, well, don't you think it's time you took responsibility? You know, you know what your healthy days are like versus your unhealthy days. You probably know more about your diet and nutrition than some of your nutritionists do. And by all means, work with your doctor, work with a nutritionist. But in the end, no one's going to follow you around all day watching what you eat. And so you really need to take responsibility for this so that you can't say, well, this diet was no good or that diet was no good. I'll just have to try another one. Um, and so with that clarity, for example, with the clarity of, this is a little bit embarrassing for a sophisticated psychologist with all the credentials that you read at the beginning of this interview, but with that clarity in hand, like I, I never eat chocolate again. I will never eat chocolate again. I could tell that any little voice in my head that said, that suggests that I have even one bite of chocolate would be the enemy. Hmm. I decided that I was going to call that voice my pig. Mm-hmm. I decided that whatever it said was pig squeal. <laughs> I decided that. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm, always a little embarrassed. I'm always a little embarrassed at this part. No, it's amazing. I, I, think, like, I love that. I, I want to adopt that for me. I'm just imagining this really obnoxious squealing sound and it's like, it just makes it funny. <laughs> people, the visual helps people. Yeah. And then I decided that the thing it was squealing for, chocolate in this case, would be pig slop. Mm. <laughs> and so if I, if, I, if I had a craving, then I would say, well, that's, that's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. I never eat pig slop. I only eat off of a human plate, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> and, and that was... <laughs> I love it. It worked for me. It worked for me. (laughs) It's amazing. It's just, it's so great because it it has you identify that voice. You give it a different, uh, you know, identity and you use the power of humor, which I think is incredibly powerful and Hey, it works for you. That's, that's awesome. I love it. Well, I, I think there's a reason it works also. And the reason is that the way you you would know more about this than me, but my understanding about the way that the brain is structured is that the the part of the brain that really is activated in addiction is is the midbrain, and it's it's kind of a remnant from evolution that we need to survive. But like this lizard brain of ours, when it sees something in the environment, it makes a very guttural, primitive decision: do it, do I kill it? Do I eat it or do I meet with it? Mm. And that's right. And so when, when a craving is activated, that's the level at which the brain is functioning for the moment. 
Now you can override that with your neocortex and some of the you know higher brain functions, which are all designed to kind of slow us down and evaluate our, our goals and say, is this consistent with what we're trying to accomplish and who we want to be and the people we love and all that. But um, at the moment of impulse, we lose contact with that higher self. And what we really have is that guttural level of functioning. And so the pig is a very guttural concept. And it, it, it rather than cultivating an attitude of love towards this part of yourself, which is really your worst enemy, you, you cultivate a little bit of an attitude of disgust and you get an unpleasant feeling the moment you hear that craving. And that unpleasant feeling is enough to jolt you, even just for a microsecond, to, to get you to pause and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you say, oh, I, I know where this leads, right? Yes. And, and so it help, helps you to make the right decision. No, it makes sense. It, it, it takes it from that, that uh, innate instinct of just having exactly what you want in the moment you have it. And like you said, it's that higher level of thinking where you then can actually identify it and have, have a bit of control over it and have that choice where it's not like, you know, you're uh, this helpless person who is a victim to, to your cravings and to your addictions, but you have that choice in that moment uh, because you're relating to that drive in a different way at that point. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. I love it. And so um, how, let's maybe think of this, because I, I love how this is really practical. It's a, it's a specific example of something that you've, you've used. So how would this maybe relate to uh, different kinds of addictions that people would deal with? Well, you know, so again, I, I prefer that people go to the rational recovery site to work on the black and white addiction, but the other types of things that people have talked to me about with it would be sex addiction or um, sometimes a negative thinking addiction. Mm-hmm. Anything where you, where you need some help to really clarify the, um, the nature of positive behavior that you want to pursue. And then you can separate yourself into a set of constructive thoughts versus destructive thoughts based upon those very clear lines. Mm-hmm. So let's say like there's a specific um, instance where maybe someone listening can relate to something like this, where they feel like they have a sex addiction or maybe another type of addiction. They're caught in that, that spiral where they're about to engage in activity that maybe deep down they don't want and they feel like they're not in control. So how would that play in, in this example? So, so, so what I would say is, assuming you could get your destructive self out of the way, mm-hmm. how, how do you want to behave uh, with regards to your sexuality? And so um, if I talk to someone about a sex addiction, then I'm asking them to define, um, define what abstinence really means to them. And so some people will say, um, you know, genital contact outside of a loving relationship. and so then I'll say, well, how, how do you define a loving relationship? And they'll say, you know, someone that I'm dating exclusively for at least three months with whom we've actually expressed love towards each other. Uh, I say, okay, so that's pretty clear. I mean, if, if, um, if we looked at any particular sexual behavior in that context, we would understand whether it met that rule or not. And then, so um, maybe they would call it an inner demon in this case. And, you know, if they are about to, um, you know, if, if they, have an, they have a sexual opportunity, they met someone at a bar or something like that, and they're about to go home with them or about to engage with them, um, they should hear very clearly, they should see very clearly that this is not someone that I have been dating exclusively for three months and have expressed, you know, and expressed love towards them. Um, and so they immediately realize, well, that's, you know, that's my inner demon. That's my inner luster or something like that. And, um, you know, they can say, I don't, I, I've decided that I will never have sex again outside of the context of a loving relationship. And so I'm not going to let the demon tell me what to do and I'm just going to ignore it. 
Mm-hmm. So I hear a couple yeah. of things with that. One, one is that is, is actually coming to that choice of defining, okay, what is it that I want it to look like for myself? Um, I think that's really key. And maybe first thing is the awareness of, okay, I have an addiction in this area. I'm, I'm sure that's like the, the biggest part is getting to that point, but then also making that choice. This is the, the, you know, stake in the sand that I'm now putting in, in the ground that this is what I am choosing for myself. And then the next part is noticing when it comes up and identifying it. Like I love the thing you said with the pig. So maybe you naming it or calling it something that resonates, you know, for the individual, but recognizing when that comes up. And so then there's that choice at that point, right? Yeah. And there's another piece of it also, which is finding, finding your reasons why. Yeah. And so right. it's huge. without, without a reason why it's, it's almost more like you're sitting in church or something and you're just trying to comply with what the pastor said or the priest said, or right. you know, you're doing things because, because mom said so. But, but if I ask you, well, what, why do you only want to have sex in the context of a loving relationship and say, well, you know, because look at my life, I don't, I don't really have the love that I want in my life. And um, I always feel horrible about myself after I'm, with someone more impulsively and you know I'm not always 100% careful so I've got this anxiety about maybe I'm going to catch something and um, and I, I really would like to live my life free of that and I really I think I deserve love in the in this world and I think that um, you know I'd like to I'd like to be able to have someone to grow, grow old with and who I could communicate with and trust and you know share finances with and maybe even have kids. I really, I want all those things. Um, and, and I would really flesh out that or flesh out that fantasy. Mm-hmm. So, and, and ground the person in the emotions behind that fantasy so that they really understand why, because what, what happens is the pig or your lower self will try to use the argument that you're going to be deprived. This is so much fun. Do you really want to deprive yourself? And you, you kind of need to know in your heart of hearts, what the pig is depriving you of, right? Because the, your, your lower self is going to deprive you of, in this case, that intimacy and love and the possibility of having someone you could trust and finances and all of those nicer things. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's really key. You saying that because those desires that we have, they don't care if you have this fulfilled, happy relationship. It wants what it wants. So I, I love that you brought that up. It, it's kind of a, protoplasmic blob of desire it's just an organ of the body yeah 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 and it's helpful knowing that about yourself too it kind of takes the uh the like what's wrong with me out of it it's like okay well this is you know it's like some real biology or real desires or, or who knows it could be things from the childhood but just knowing that you know that part of you is not concerned with maybe what you want on a higher level it's helpful to know that i think Yeah, and it's helpful to remember that freedom actually sits on top of discipline. Mm. Um, Nobody's in this way of thinking. Nobody's going to tell you what to eat, who who to make love with, um, what you can or can't do. But as adults, we all make choices of the kinds of people that we want to be, and if you know that you have the ability to control yourself, like you're, you're not a slave to your impulses, then you can make choices about how you want to express your impulses. You can choose what to do with your freedom. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I think <laughs> that I, I love what you said about that. And, and I think structure is, is really powerful because it can give freedom. It, at first it can seem like, oh, I'm this prisoner now, but actually having certain principles. Like for myself, I, I had um, Craig Ballantyne on the show a few months ago talking about the perfect day formula. And he was talking about different structures that he's put in place in his life, different principles that he lives by. And they're unique to him and everyone can come up with their own. But for what he outlined, it really has given him a lot of freedom and a lot of his clients he's worked with a lot of freedom uh, because it, it takes care of the most important things and has those structured into to the day every day. And in having that, that framework allows you to actually have more flow. 
Um, so I'll put, I'll put that in the show notes, but it's a great show as a reminder. And I, I think, in, especially in, in these areas that we're talking about, having those maybe your own principles to live by um, is, is really key. It, it also eliminates the need for willpower. Right. Because, yeah. Yeah. Because if, if you've made decisions about the type of person you are, what you do and don't do, then you're not constantly tortured by should I or shouldn't I. Kind of like um, sometimes I ask my show hosts, when was the last time that you robbed a bank? Have you robbed a bank recently, Lauren? I haven't. I've definitely had thoughts about it, but no. <laughs> <laughs> but because you're not a bank robber, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and there's lots of stuff you might want inside of a bank. You might have cravings for the money inside of a bank, but um, the truth is you really don't pay them any attention because it's not just not an option. You don't require willpower to, to not rub a bank. Just like I don't require willpower to resist chocolate because I've decided I'm not the kind of person who eats chocolate anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just how it is. And th- this helps particularly with, um, you know, because willpower is a fatigable muscle. So a lot of people find that they start out really well during the beginning of the day, but then when they get home at night and they're really tired, they'll you know, go for the cookies or something like that. Um, that's because if you're relying on willpower, eventually you face decision fatigue and you just don't have that muscle anymore. But if you've decided I'm not the kind of person who has cookies, then you haven't been making decisions all day about that. And so you're not fatigued. Mm-hmm. I love that. And it's, it, it just is such a great point to bring up of, of being careful of the labels that you give yourself because like you said, I would never think about robbing a bank because I just don't identify myself as a bank robber. But if I saw myself as a bank robber, every time I drove past a bank, it would probably be really tempting to go in and rob that bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of things that people don't do that would otherwise be really tempting. We don't, um, we don't grab attractive strangers and kiss them on the bus. We don't, <laughs> we don't, we, we don't kick policemen in the tush. There, there, <laughs> there's a there's just a lot of things you don't do, which you would otherwise have the impulse to do if you hadn't decided along the way that you were not the kind of person that did that. Mm. And I, I use those extreme examples so that people recognize they, they already know how to do this. Because in our culture, there's a message of powerlessness when it comes to addiction. It's kind of a disempowering message. It says you really, you can't quit, you can't do it alone. Um, but there are all these things that we've decided not to do. There are all these behavioral decisions that we've integrated into our character that we just don't realize that we've integrated into our character. And that's why I use those extreme examples so that Mm -hmm. um, even though they're a little silly, people say, you know what? I did all these things and I I could do one more. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy. And, and I think, you know, I'm thinking of how cool it would be to have like a little assignment of just writing out, all the different things that you quote unquote know about yourself that I'm someone who does this, or I'm this, I'm this type of person and like write out just stream of consciousness, everything that comes up and then look back at each individual one and really say, is this true? Can I know for sure that this is true? <laughs> and, and as I'm, I, I'm sure, I mean, I've never even really thought about doing that kind of assignment, but I'm sure that so many things that we think about ourselves, I mean, are just kind of made up. Maybe something we decided at some point, something happened when we were in fifth grade, you know, and then all of a sudden we're officially this person from now, that point forward and how we yeah. live and structure our lives around these stories. But, um, you know, really looking like, is that really true? I, I spent an hour yesterday talking to my mom, who's 76 years old, mm. about about the fact that she actually could avoid the Halloween candy if she wanted to. Mm. And she was sure she, 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 she had defined herself as a woman for 76 years that couldn't avoid the Halloween candy. So why was she going to avoid it this week? Yeah. And I had to go through. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I love that exercise. I love that idea. I actually, as you were first articulating it, I heard it a different way, which was, um, I think you were talking about listing out all these possibly disempowering beliefs and challenging yeah. them. But, but I think we could also list out the empowering beliefs about ourselves. Um, you, you know, I, I am, um, you know, I, I am a smart person. I'm a person who can do this in school. And look at, look at all the things that we actually take for granted that we're capable of doing or capable of controlling 
just to, just to reinforce the incredible power that we have inside of ourselves to to make these kind of decisions. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, it's our choice. We can make a list and decide whatever identity that we want because. The reality is, is that every moment is fresh and new and it's, it's our choice in every moment of what kind of identi- identity that we want to have. I mean, we give the meaning to life so we can decide to have an empowering context or not, right? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Sartre said we remake ourselves every day we get up in the morning. Yeah. You, you can decide who you're going to be today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so w- one of the things that I love that you, that you do in your work, you talk about in your work is, is just that they're that about the, the topic of binge eating, something so many people can relate to. So in your view, to just kind of dive into this a little more into the eating piece, do you really think that it is possible for, for someone to, to never binge again? So I think that it's necessary to adopt that attitude. I, I think on a practical basis, people make mistakes and they they get up and do it again. But um, let, let me answer the question with a question for a second and you'll understand better what I mean. Have you ever been to a wedding where the vow went something like this? You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I can be faithful to you forever, but <laughs> there's a, there sure are a lot of attractive people out there and I'd say it's the odds are about 80%. I'm just being honest. You want me to be honest, right? <laughs> right. Should be a runaway bride if you heard that. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, that's what kind of kills the romance. Right. And, and the reason I use that analogy is because the essence of commitment is a perfect commitment. Um, if, you're going to, if you're going to climb a mountain, you need to visualize yourself on top with your hands held high in the air victorious. If you want to help your six-year-old daughter to ride her bike up what's a really big hill for her all the way the first time, and she really wants to do that, you don't, you don't, you, you help her visualize herself on top. You don't say to her, you know, you're probably not going to make it, little Sarah, so don't even bother trying. Just do the best you can. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's not the psychology of winners. The psychology of winners is I'm going to get to the top of the mountain. I see myself on top. If I fall down, if I fall down, I'm going to get up again. But the reason that I'm going to keep that vision of the top of the mountain very clear in mind is so that I can purge that voice of uncertainty and doubt from my head because all that voice of uncertainty and doubt does is drains my energy and distracts me. Mm -hmm. And so the attitude upon making the commitment is um, I would call an attitude of perfection and 100% knowledge that you will accomplish the goal. The attitude, if you happen to make a mistake, and we don't tell our destructive inner selves or inner pigs this, if you happen to make a mistake, the attitude is to feel the pain for the moment because there would be no denying that it was painful and we really want to have the opportunity to examine what happened. But then just like touching a hot stove, you figure out, well, why didn't I know not to touch the hot stove and what do I do differently next time when I'm around the stove? And if you have to make an adjustment to your food plan, you do. And then then you resume. The problem is that people usually get very involved after a binge in beating mm-hmm. themselves up. And what they don't realize, like Carol Munter told me this first. She said, it's almost impossible to binge or to keep overeating if you refuse to hate yourself. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, if you won't yell at yourself, it's hard, because the purpose of yelling at yourself, the purpose of hating yourself excessively I'm um, not talking about the pain you feel at the hot stove, the, the initial sense of guilt. But after that initial sense, the purpose of continuing it is to wear you down. It's actually your pig wearing your da- you, you down so that you feel weak, so that you feel pathetic, so that you can binge some more. Mm-hmm. That's the whole purpose of, yeah, yeah. And so it's necessary to believe that we can never binge again, even if, in a, as a practical matter, we might make mistakes. It's kind of a paradox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it confirms a story that we've told to ourselves, right? I mean, every binge, every action, it it serves a purpose. And if if that particular action is in place, the binging is in place to punish yourself, then it really may be confirming a way that you see yourself, 
right? So I think it even goes back to that exercise of what it is that I really feel about myself. Do I think I'm this or this? Because these actions are confirming that for myself. And I love that. It's like, if you really don't allow yourself to hate yourself, the binging um, will likely not happen. It will not, or it will likely not continue. Um, it, it, it's very, it's very difficult to keep binging if you refuse to hate yourself. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I believe that everyone's an individual, especially when it comes to, to food and when it comes to diet. And I, I don't think there's one specific diet for every single person that works um, for every person. So um, how, how is it in, in your experience working with people and what you've seen to create, you know, a, kind of something that's personalized, like, like someone's own food plan? Do you feel like that's something that, that can be created and how does someone do that? Well, most people kind of sort of know how they want to eat. And there's one significant, one very significant food trigger or eating behavior that gets them in trouble. And so I usually start with people by helping them examine, you know, what, what one thing could they do tomorrow that would make a dramatic difference um, in, in, their, in their overall diet. And for me, it was chocolate. For me, it was when I said I would never have chocolate again, everything started to change. The, um, the other piece of it is that as you take things away, you usually need to add things too. Mm. And so if, if I was having a thousand calories of chocolate a day, well, maybe I needed to add a thousand calories of fruit or it, it actually, this is kind of interesting underneath my craving for chocolate turned out to be a craving for chlorophyll, I think. Mm. Cause I, I found, I found that when I'd have the craving for chocolate, if I blended up a whole bunch of leafy green vegetables in the blender and I drank them down real quick, mm-hmm. I would get the energy without the crash. Could be the magnesium too. That's interesting. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Could, could you say more about that? Well, it's just those are higher magnesium sources. Interesting. Yeah, you never know. That's why a lot of women will crave chocolate before their cycles if they're deficient in magnesium. Well, and, and the other principle... I wouldn't have known the actual minerals that I, that I needed, but the other principle I do know mm-hmm. is that addiction is a survival drive gone wrong. Um, and so when you pull the addiction away, when you pull that survival drive away from the erroneous target, in this case, it was chocolate, you need to figure out where to reattach that survival drive. And kind of like um, if a, when a smoker quits smoking, when they have the craving, if they take three very deep breaths, the craving is, is attenuated because really the smoker had confused smoke for oxygen. And mm-hmm. so now, you know, you're, re, you're redirecting the survival drive back to where it originally belonged. And everything that you give up, which you know, you know usually it's some industrial food or some hyperpalatable, um, you know, excessively concentrated source of calories or uh, some way processed food that the survival drive had erroneously attached to that was getting you in trouble. You need to kind of figure out, well, what might you really be craving instead? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and so sometimes people like they give up flour, they switch it out for brown rice or they'll switch it out for a lot more fruit. Um, If they, I'm trying to give up salt. A lot of times I find people eat more tomatoes or more, um, m- more spinach or something. And, and there's just something about maybe it's the mineral content of, of those vegetables that seems to work. But the process of creating a food plan is not just a process of taking things away. It's the process of adding things. And, and it's also the process of being careful to avoid becoming too restrictive because in virtually every case for binge eaters, and I, you know, if you look at the DSM-5 definition for binge eaters, you'll see that people are really, really overdoing it and they feel like they can't stop. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think there's an evolutionary mechanism in our brains that says, if you go through a starvation mode, that when food is available, you have to take in all you can. Um, I don't know that that's been proven, but I'm pretty sure it's there. And the implication of that is don't go through starvation modes. If you don't want to trigger the binge mode, then the solution to a having gained 10 or 20 pounds through a period of binge eating is not to 
go on a crash diet for, you know, a month or two and take that off or a week or a couple of weeks to take that off is to lose a pound or two a week for um, a longer period of time while you eat in a satisfactory and adequate way. And Mm -hmm. developing people's food plans, I I find, I'm I'm not a nutritionist or a medical doctor, but I I know a lot about nutrition. Um, I, I find that I have to constantly be prodding them because binge eaters want to diet to get rid of the impact. Mm. And the dieting is is the worst thing you could do. So I I find that I have to prod them to just eat nutritionally adequately and lose weight over the long haul. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the diet can end up being a source of abuse if it goes the opposite direction and having it be so restricted and so perfect. And and it's like it, it creates it's that cycle that's continuing just in a different, different way. So yeah, I think that's that's a really important way to um you know, to kind of alter the diet to where it's giving, uh, it's replacing with something else, like you said of, you know, like the chocolate and you end up having a bunch of greens and it, and it helps to satisfy that need or that drive, but it's also something that's a lot more loving. Yes, you understand it exactly. And, and Lauren, the last thing I'd say about developing a food plan is, is that, um, Often better, sometimes the first rule you adopt has the impact of helping you lose weight. More often than not, it doesn't. More often than not, what you're doing is you're learning how to play this game. You're learning how to separate your constructive versus destructive selves. You're learning how to give up the obsession and set yourself free and get rid of all these feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's okay. Give yourself a few weeks to do that. And then you can add something that is a rule that has more to do with volume control or calorie control or something like that so that you start to take the weight off. But um, I'll tell people not to be worried if in the first few weeks you're not losing weight. If you're, if you're really understanding how the game is played and you're starting to feel empowered and excited, then you're doing it right. Absolutely. Second to last question for you. I'm curious because you seem like probably an endless student as am I any, any books in particular that you would recommend to further this topic for people. And then also if there's any books that you're reading right now, I'm always reading a book. (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually reading a really interesting book. I forgot the name of the author. It's called talking to crazy. And it's, it's, um, you should probably interview him. He's okay. Long, long-term psycholo- psychologist, and um, he has figured out that when the amygdala is firing, that what, what, you know, when, which is kind of a part of the lizard brain, when when our fear response is up, when our primitive brain is up, that you can't talk to people in the same way. Yeah, it looks so, like Mark Goldston. Yeah, that's the author. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's such a good book. <laughs> talking to crazy awesome he also wrote just listen which looks like a pretty good lots of good reviews awesome thank you i, I did I, I didn't read that i didn't read that one and i and i recommend that um other books people could read in this area would be um brain over binge by katherine hansen or um weight loss w-a-i-t loss by wendy Hend- henderson or hendrix i forget mm-hmm. but you'll find it if you search for binge eating on amazon my, my book is the bestseller and those are the two sellers just after that amazing um, but I, I can t- i can tell you where to get my book for free though but, but um yes where can people that, do that <laughs> if they head over to neverbingeagain.com and they sign up for the reader bonuses i'll point them to the latest version of the free book um what they'll also get are a set of food plan starter templates so you can see some examples of other types of rules that work and more importantly you know, Dr. Lauren and I today were talking a lot about this in theory, but I'll send you a set of recorded coaching sessions so you can hear real people learning the technique and, you know, using it in practice. So just go to neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button and sign up for the list and you'll get everything. Awesome. My last question is what would be like one nugget takeaway that you would pass on to my listeners so they could implement starting today it's a lot less complicated 
than it's made out to be. All you have to do to never binge again is never binge again. You don't, you don't have to sit by the river and contemplate your navel. You don't have to smack yourself on the head with a spatula. All, all you need to do to never binge again is never binge again. Draw a line in the sand. Make sure it's a really clear line. Decide what you want to call your inner destructive self. Um, listen for it trying to cajole you to cross over that line and just ignore it the same way you ignore a, ser a serial killer and de determine that you really can never binge again. Remember, it's possible to be perfectly, perfectly committed, even though you might not be a perfect person, just like it's possible to make a perfect marriage vow, even though you're not a perfect person. Mm, I love that. Perfectly committed, even though you're not a perfect person. Glenn, it's such juicy stuff. I love it. And thank you for all the fun little um, visuals and all the little life lessons that you've accumulated along the way. I'm very grateful for the time you spent with us. So um, yeah, I, I so appreciate it. I know it's, um, it's a little late over in your neck of the woods, so I'll let you get to your evening. But um, big cyber hug. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. <laughs> cyber hugs that's cute Lauren I'm really honored I, I, I really enjoyed the interview and I hope it's helpful for people so um, thank you so much I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dr. Low Radio thank you so much for joining us and for more after the show you can head over to drlowshow.com where you can find the show notes be sure to subscribe to the show and share with all your friends and please head over to iTunes and leave the show a five star review and leave a comment I read each and every one and they warm my heart Thank you so much again for joining us. I promise to keep bringing you fun, inspiring, empowering content. Until next time, lots of love, and I'll talk to you soon. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.